to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we seek to understand and try to sort of dissect the practice of plural marriage and see how it affects us today. And I couldn't be more excited because uh, last time I had someone in the studio, it was Kate Kelly, and I was just telling my guest here today that I have two amazing women that I can claim that have been here. Actually, three, because Robin Linkhart has been here. But I want to introduce historian Barbara Jones-Brown. Can you say hello? Hi. For those of you who don't know who Barbara is, Barbara holds a master's degree in American history from the U- University of Utah and a-, and a bachelor's degree from BYU. She specializes in two of Mormon history's most challenging subjects, some that I love to read about, the Mountain Meadows Massacre and Polygamy. In 2009, she won the Utah State University's Leonard J. Arrington Award for a personal essay on her study of polygamy, and another essay titled The Rise and Demise of Mormon Polygamy in Mexico is soon to be published in an anthology by the University of New Mexico Press. And of course, we're going to talk about some of the other stuff she does, but in my mind, she is one of the most prominent women historians in the LDS Church right now, so we're so lucky to have her. She's smart. She's talented. She does really, really great work. And Thanks, Lizzie. Your check is in the mail. Yeah. See, see how this works. So, uh, yeah, she's she's currently working on um, a project about Mountain Meadows that's coming out later on. And so when that happens, we'll have her back on. And uh, I brought her on today to talk about the Mexican colonies because she's working on a book called, tentatively called Life of a Century, um, the 20th Century Adventures of Lorna Call Alder, who grew up in the colonies. That's right. right. She was born and raised in the Mormon Mexican colonies in Chihuahua, Mexico. Yeah. And you know, this, this is an important, such an important part of understanding Mormon polygamy because hundreds of thousands of Mormon polygamists were at one time in these colonies. And it's not something that we really talk a lot about. So I brought Barbara on, but first, Barbara, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in this topic? Sure. Um, my background is in actually in journalism. I um, have a degree in journalism from Brigham Young University, and um, I was working f- as an editor for the Ensign Magazine when I started getting interested in editing historical pieces about Mormon history. And um, I had a baby and decided to stay home, quit my full-time job and stay home with her. And then um, a family who knew my work at the Ensign approached me about writing a biography of their mother, Lorna Call Alder, who at the time was in her late 90s. Um, she passed away uh, a little over a year ago at the age of nearly 107. So this woman lived a good long life. And um, I had the privilege to be able to interview Lorna, do personal history interviews with her um, uh, 38 times. And so I was able to learn her story and it was just fascinating to me to hear it as it unfolded as she told her story. So she was born, um, in the Mexican colony or Mormon quote unquote colony of Colonial Dublin in 1906. 
And these uh, colonies were established so that the Mormons could practice polygamy uh, free of prosecution from the U.S. federal government. Yeah, and that's fascinating because we talk on here a lot about Mormon history and how there, you know, is such an absence of Mormon women's voices. And of course, that's not true. If you really dig down, you can find a lot of great, great histories. Well, you don't even have to dig. Yeah, that's <laughs> they're, true. They're all around us. It's just a matter of um, seeking them out and seeing them. Kind of like, you know how people say, start seeing motorcycles? Yeah, start seeing women's it's, history. We need to start seeing women in history because we're, we're all we're all around it's so. there and there's such great things and um and i've noticed that too because you know when i first came to this project i was like there's in sacred loneliness and there's you know um my quinn stuff which is great i'm not trying to diminish that at all but as i've been getting into this i've i have so many good things like sister saints that i just plugged last last time with all these great essays there's just so many great women historians doing great work and you're one of them so thank you thank you Lindsay. so yeah let's talk about the mexican colonies it's an important part in the series we're getting up to the 1880s so we're getting right before the manifesto and uh we know that brigham young has been sending people he sends them up to canada and he sends them as far as mexico and he's you know he's trying to to spread out, and we know that the first uh, mission to Mexico was in 1874, correct? Yes, in the 1870s, and uh, that actually, uh, my great-great-great-grandfather, Daniel W. Jones, was actually one of the missionaries who first went down into Mexico because he spoke Spanish. Really? Uh-huh, and um, so they they went to proselyte, but they were also there kind of checking out uh, the possibilities of colonization for Mormons. Now, it's so interesting to me because... Uh, Mormons from the United States, I should say. Yeah. Well, Mormons have this really, especially American American Mormons, have this very complicated uh, relationship with Mexico right now with politics and, and immigration. But it's so interesting to think that a lot of, like Mitt Romney, for example, um, he's a very prominent Republican Mormon, and I mean, his, we all know that his father grew up there. Yeah, he was his, born there. his father was born there and then left in, when he was five years old during the Mexican Revolution. But yeah, Mitt, Mitt Romney's roots definitely are there in the colonies. Well, and it's, so if your grandfather was a missionary there, we know that there was a second mission in 1876. And Brigham Young, as early as 1877, he was thinking about colonizing, but it was dangerous, right? There was Apache raiders in the area. So do you know anything about your grandfather? Did he encounter any sort of danger? I imagine it would have been a real frontier experience. Not that I know of. (laughs) I haven't studied that thoroughly enough. I do know he was involved in... um, translating selections of the Book of Mormon into Spanish. Oh, he cool. and uh, a man named Trejo from Mexico were the first to do those first selections. Of course, the Book of Mormon has been retranslated into Spanish since then, um, but he was the first to be involved with that. That's really as cool. part of so, this mission. So he would have gone in the 1870s? Yes. Okay, so he would have been there really early on. And then we know that there are, you know, some complicated land deals that the Mormons are trying to establish. One thing I wanted, I wanted to take a side note really quick and talk about the death of Brigham Young, because we've been building up to this. And it'll be really quick, because that's not the topic of this. But 1877, Brigham Young is talking about colonizing Mexico. And in 1877, Brigham dies. Now, the story goes that late in late August, he gets sick. And about a week later, on August 29th, 
he passes away. And of course, there are all these persistent rumors that he is poisoned. And um, I think arsenic was a thing. And so if you want a fun, fun read with absolutely no credibility, you can look up, I think his name is Samuel Taylor. And he was the grandson of church president John Taylor. And he kind of was obsessed with this idea that there was some sort of scandal going on that Brigham was poisoned because Brigham wanted his sons to take over the church and the church leaders had something else in, in mind. So he writes this long, complicated thing. He consults doctors. And of course, he's missing a lot of, a lot of facts because we have the Brigham Young papers that are being released now. And we have a lot of good biographies since, but there was, there was a lot of scandal involved. So much so that two days after his death, the Desert News posted or published a long, long history about his medical conditions and what happened. And they blamed it on sort of a ruptured appendicitis. They called it cholera morbus. Brigham Young had a long history of health problems. So there's no, there's no credibility to any of the rumors that he was poisoned, but, um, he does die in 1877. And then of course, John Taylor steps up and takes over. Now, uh, John Taylor would pick up this sort of colonizing idea. John Taylor would have a really heavy burden because federal legislation is really ramping up at this point. So do you want to tell us kind of about the Edmunds-Tucker Act that comes in 82? So Brigham Young dies in 77. Then we have uh, John Taylor, which I think is 78, shortly after, because Brigham died at the end of the year. And then um, we have the Edmunds-Tucker Act in 82, which basically felonizes polygamy. Sure. Um, I should just make a, a slight correction. It was the Edmonds Act oh, that sorry, passed in 1882. Act. And then the Edmonds Tucker Act that you mentioned, uh, passes in 1887. Okay. So, so can you explain the difference between Edmonds and the Edmonds Tucker? Sure. That's something I'm not clear on. Sure. So the Edmonds Act made bigamous cohabitation a misdemeanor. So it, it didn't have the teeth that the Edmonds Tucker Act that came along in 87. That, uh, had more repercussions. So um, the Edmunds-Tucker Act disincorporated the church for fostering polygamy, and it also disfranchised Utah women from voting. The Utah Territorial Legislature had granted women Utah women the vote in 1870, and it said that individuals who practiced polygamy would be fined up to $800 and imprisoned for up to five years for each instance of plural marriage. And so that would so, be for each wife? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh huh. So this had more teeth and it gave, um, federal authority more power to actually go after and prosecute these men. They would try to get the women to, um, testify against their husbands, but really they were, they were going after the men and imprisoning the men more than the women. Yeah. And if you go down to the Daughters of the Utah Pioneer Museum, there are these great photos on the wall of yeah. these imprisoned men in the yeah. prison stripes. Yeah, I think it seems like nearly early every uh, Mormon family who has uh, Utah roots, polygamous roots, has a picture somewhere of their ancestor in the uh, striped pajamas type <laughs> prisoners' uniforms. Yeah, that everyone they used always gives their Mormon cred. If you want real good pioneer stock Mormon cred, show us the striped pajamas. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you can imagine John Taylor has a lot. Of pressure. Of course, 1877, when Brigham dies, a lot of things are happening. We know Castledale, Utah was established, Gardner Mill, Orangeville, and the St. George Temple was rededicated. 
So a lot of stuff is happening, and John Taylor takes us on. We talked about this earlier. He moves into the Gardo, Gardo house for a short amount of time, and the Gardo house has all nice. these, and has all these like secret passages where they're hiding these people that are trying to escape federal legislation. So it becomes a terror. And we know from some, uh, many women's writings that they resented the government and they feared it, right? Yeah. They, um, a lot of women, um, stepped forward at this time to defend polygamy. And these were some of our, um, strongest women at the time who defended it and, um, uh, talked about all of the, um, the, the good things that came from it and so forth. So you actually had quite a few women defending it. And I think that's why, um, the territorial legislature granted women the vote in a, as early as they did in 1870 so that they could, um, their voice could be heard on this issue of polygamy. Yeah, they really the hoped vote. that if they gave women the vote, that women would vote against polygamy. And of course, that didn't happen. No, they hoped the territorial legislature hoped that they would vote for it. For, for, for polygamy. It. That's, yes. yes. Yeah. 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 And, and so. So that's one reason why the federal government disfranchised women. So they take the vote away. Right. And then uh, women eventually get it back. So. Yeah, we're going to do, we're going to hopefully do a whole podcast on the suffrage movement and early Mormon women. There are these great, uh, I think there's a photo of, um, Susan B. Anthony with a bunch of Mormon women. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, Mormon women, uh, when you, when you get to your next podcast on this, they, they were strong women and they were out there campaigning, fighting for, uh, the women's vote and had very close relationships with Susan B. Anthony and other suffragists. What a, what a fascinating time to be a Mormon woman. I think that would have been amazing. So let's talk about the colonies. So we know that there are these missions. There are, there are several colonies that start being established. And of course, the rumor later would be that Pancho Villa drives them out. And we know that's not exactly true, right? That Mormons there yeah. try to stay neutral, but let's, let's get into it. You, do you want to tell us the story of? The colonies, the, pretty broad. <laughs> okay, the colonies themselves. So, um, as you mentioned, um, Congress keeps stepping up its efforts to end polygamy in the United States. And um, so church leaders begin encouraging Latter-day Saints who want to practice the principle, as they called it, to leave the country. And to, uh, so many of them, it was never in the hundreds of thousands, but thousands of them started, uh, immig immigrating in earnest to Mexico in the 1880s. Do we know what a journey would have been like for them? Because at the time, I mean, the railroad was going through Utah. Was yeah. there a train that came yeah. down there? There were a lot of, I think most people took trains, okay. but I, I'm not sure exactly the numbers, but some people took wagons, but a lot of people were able to take the railroad down to El Paso and then, um, wagons across, um, from there. So you have in earnest a lot of Latter-day Saints who either were practicing polygamy or wanted to enter into polygamy, um, moving down into the colonies. So Chihuahuas in Northern Mexico. So this was just across the border, not far below the border that they went and started colonizing. So one popular misconception is that polygamy was legal in Mexico. In fact, it was illegal. Oh, I didn't know that. So uh, local Mexican officials, when they see all these um, Latter-day Saints moving in and they know that they're practicing polygamy, they, in, in accordance with their law, start taking steps to evict them from Mexico. So Latter-day Saint leaders obviously were worried about this, so they went to the capital and they met with the um, 
dictator, if you will, of Mexico, Porfirio Diaz and his cabinet. So they meet with him and they say, hey, we really want to um, colonize these areas. We want to contribute to your economy. We're good farmers. We let us stay. Oh, and by the way, we do practice polygamy. So at the end of those meetings, uh, Helaman Pratt, who was the uh, Mexican mission president at the time, who was interpreting, he wrote in his journal that um, Pacheco, who was in uh, Diaz's cabinet, said, look, if you you farm, you contribute to our com- economy, you help develop the area, and you live your marriage practices quietly, we'll, we'll kind of look the other way, and you can stay. So that's what Pratt records in his journal, and that came to be what the Latter-day Saints understood, was that they had the tacit approval of the Mexican government to practice polygamy, and uh, they weren't prosecuted for for polygamy, even though it was illegal in Mexico. So tell us, I mean, what would life have been like in these Mexican colonies? Because, you know, um, when you think of Mexico, you know, old Mexico, you think of the stereotypes, the the dry, dusty desert, and, um, you know, these sort of adobe homes. And we know that, that the further south saints got, sometimes the poor they got because the land was really harsh when they were first colonizing. Was it like that? Was it hard harsh conditions at first? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, um, those images that you have of this dry, dusty land is, is what they encountered. They did settle in a, um, in a valley called the Casas Grandes Valley. And so there was water there that they could use to irrigate their farms and so forth. But yes, they did meet with, uh, harsh conditions. Uh, it was interesting The the traditional Me- Mexican culture, the people had adapted to that environment and built, tended to build houses that were one story and square uh, with a courtyard, if you will, or a garden in the middle of these homes in order to protect their produce, to protect their gardens from the harsh elements. Well, the colonists came in and they brought their culture with them, as as most immigrants tend to do, and they built these lovely um, two-story brick Victorian-style homes with the gardens on the outside. So um, I've been to the colonies, and, and these homes are really beautiful, but they're kind of an anomaly out there in the middle of... Um, so it's like going to downtown Salt Lake and placing it, like those Yeah, absolutely. Homes. They brought their culture with them. And again, wow. that's what people do of all of all cultures. So That's fascinating. And, and those homes are still standing today? Many of them, yes. So cool. They're beautiful. So tell tell me about the biggest colony down there because there were several um we know that there was the one in Juarez and Colonial Diaz Colonia Diaz yeah. Colonia Diaz mm-hmm. uh what do we what do we know about them well the size of the colonies kind of kind of ebbed and flowed through the years today by far and uh you know in, in uh the early 20th century uh Colonial Juarez became the largest colony but um earlier on Colonial Juarez and Colonial Dublin were kind of neck and neck in terms of their numbers. And in fact, I think uh, Colonial Dublin was actually bigger for a time. And that's, Dublin is where your research started because you were talking about Lorna. And I don't want to spoil anything from the book, but her family, she came from a polygamous family, correct? Yes. And they settled in, uh, they came from Bountiful, Utah. They went to Star Valley, Wyoming. And then eventually went down to Colonial Dubon, where they settled there. That's a lot of traveling. 
It is a lot of moving around. What was the church like there? Was it functioning the same? Did they have bishops that would mm-hmm. function the same as in, you know, the frontier West? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, again, they brought their culture and their practices with them. So it, uh, it worked very much like it did in Utah. Most of these folks were from Utah or um, somewhere on the Wasatch range. And they were proselytizing so, mm-hmm. at the time as well when they were down there. No, they, they, well, I mean, of course there were missionaries proselytizing proselytizing in Mexico, but these folks weren't there to proselytize as much as to live polygamy, and they were kind of trying to keep that quiet as uh, Pacheco had recommended they did. Yeah, they were kind of minding their own business, living their religion, and um, practicing this uh, principle of polygamy, which they believed prepared them for the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. Did they encounter any sort of violence from... uh, Local people or maybe, you know, raiding Indians? Um, no, not until the uh, Mexican Revolution. I mean, I'm sure there were some, of course, minor uh, incidences of violence here and there as there are in any uh, community. But really, that did not come uh, in full force until the Mexican Revolution. So they would have had a period of what, let's see, the Mexican Revolution was in... Roughly, yeah, roughly 1911 to 1917. So they would have maybe 20-ish years of relative peace? Yes. It was sort of like a refuge. Absolutely, and the colonies flourished. They flourished. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm curious, were they taking additional wives, um, Mexican wives, or were they sending, you know, women no, down they there? Were, How was that happening? They, they were white practicers of polygamy. So they were they were flourishing. Their numbers were increasing, um, of course, through their offspring, but also through people who continued to come across the border as um, prosecution of polygamy stepped up in the United States. Uh, more and more people continued to cross the border into Mexico to these colonies. Now, were they just polygamists that were coming through, or were they just regular old Mormon monogamists that wanted... Um, I'm sure there were some uh, monogamists, but really the majority, the vast majority of the community was polygamous. And they were there for that principle. I mean, they had to sacrifice. They had to make extreme sacrifices to come down to Mexico. So it was people that uh, did so because they really believed. So it wasn't like, I mean, it was a refuge, but it wasn't like it was this nice vacation that everyone wanted to go to. It was this hard... No, it, it was a lot of hard work. It was a lot of sacrifice, and but it was a respite from prosecution for polygamy. Okay. Yeah, I'm fascinated by this period because, you know, Nauvoo, it was really secretive. They come to Utah by the 1850s. They're living it out loud, but, it's, of course, it's really bumpy, and they're figuring out how to do this. But by the 1880s, you have some generations that are fully integrated into this lifestyle, right? So... I can imagine that living in Mexico, where you're surrounded by other polygamous families, it might have been an easier way to live it because the community actually supported the lifestyle. Absolutely. And that was all that these children born and raised here, that was all they knew. They didn't know what a monogamous lifestyle was like. This was so normal for them, for these people. It didn't seem odd to us or odd to them like it does to us today. It was just absolutely normal. So I often hear that, you know, people like to unfairly, in my opinion, characterize polygamy as like the FLDS polygamy. 
if there was an isolated community living the practice and they're all living it sort of, you know, I don't know, fanatically is too strong of a word, but they're very devoted to it. Is it inevitable that you end up sort of like this fundamentalist group? I mean, do we have any instances where they were marrying underage girls and there was all this kind of abuse? Or was it just kind of on par with what we know about, you know, Utah polygamy, just more concentrated? Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's definitely a huge difference between, um, at least what I saw in my research, a huge difference between like the Warren Jeffs, uh, style polygamy that we see practice where there's clear abuse and the polygamy practice in these families that I studied, I didn't see any of that abuse. And, and on the contrary, I saw, um, children who were very, very happy in these homes. They had these idyllic kind of agrarian <laughs> culture homes where they had wonderful schools for these children, uh, a, a beautiful neighborhood, um, a healthy lifestyle. They, they lived on the, on their own livestock and lived on the gardens or surrounding their homes, lived off the things that they raised and just a lot of love I saw in these homes and, uh, a lot of love between, uh, sister wives, if you will. Um, and again, I'm sure there were instances of, of abuse as there would be in any kind of any community on this earth today. But, um, but what I saw when I studied, um, this community was very different than the abusive, um, communities that we think of often today. Well, and it's important for listeners to know, and we're going to talk about this in the future when we talk about, you know, contemporary polyg- polygamous sex, but Warren Jeffs really liked ramped it up and took the community off the rail. So um, the history of the break-off sex are not all oppressive and um, abusive like we like to think they are. So we'll talk about that. But I'm interested in, you were talking about these loving homes. Now, this is the tension that I think that modern Mormon women feel. We want to follow the prophet. We want to follow the doctrine. But we also are really, many of us are really scared of this practice, adverse to it. Um, so I can imagine at least, you know, a couple of years ago before I started studying it, when I would hear these idyllic stories of women, there was a part of me that was glad because I knew that this was true. This was what we we're supposed to do. But there was also a part of me that felt like, oh, don't tell me it was good. But I think that it's important that we share these stories. We talk about these women who sacrificed for it and were, you know, rewarded with a happy life. So can you tell us some some instances of families that you knew that really got along? Sure. Um, and I should point out um, that I think with polygamous marriages, I don't want to paint an all rosy picture that, oh, it was all rosy and good and, and wonderful. I, I think polygamous marriages are just like monogamous marriages in that, you know, some monogamous monogamous marriages are great and fantastic and wonderful. Some, you know, we've got the full spectrum. Some are awful. And I think it was the exact same thing with polygamous marriages. So on the good, on the good that I saw, the good marriages, the good polygamous marriages, um, I saw women who, um, particularly when they're involved with their husband in picking who the next wife would be, they would select together, okay, I think she would be compatible for our family. What do you think? And the woman would often choose someone 
obviously another single woman, but who was her very good friend. And so oftentimes these women would become very close. They would share um, in their child-rearing responsibilities, share in their household responsibilities, start businesses together. Um, Mormon men were often called away on missions for long periods of times. And so these women would support each other as, as two adults in the household in raising their children and, and running a household and supporting themselves, supporting themselves by starting their own businesses and so forth. So I liked that when I saw that, that it helped um, these women be more self-sustaining and more independent. And, um, and really have, I mean, a sisterhood because you are... Yeah future was really invested in one another. I mean, it wasn't just like That's your right. neighbor. You, yeah, you believed you were sealed together for eternity. Yeah, and I, so. think, I think that's something that many of us can't really grasp because, I mean, we can imagine it, but it's so not a part of our story right now. But if you want to get in the mindset of a polygamous woman, think of really tying your families together so your salvation is inherently tied to theirs. And I think that that might maybe sort of lessen the the tension that we feel, the angst. Because I know for me, if I were sealed to another woman, um, I would really kind of up the ante on on my behavior, my investment, and the choices that I made. If that makes any sense. Yeah. I um, I just try and understand the perspective of all the people I study in history. And so while I don't personally agree with polygamy. Um, I do try to understand those who did live it and why they lived it and how, how it worked for them. So I, and I have to admit, there's been times where I've had like my best friend has been staying with us or I've been staying with her for a few days and it's so much fun. We, we make dinner together and the whole time we are talking, sharing ideas and laughing and just having a great time. And I've joked with some of my friends that I said, you know, I could do polygamy with you if you were the other wife. I could do this. This is fun. I, I it's but the the uh, sharing my husband sexually, I could not do that. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's where we run into trouble, right? That's so. where we run into to trouble, and and there's other issues I won't go into. But anyways, again, I'm not um, advocating polygamy in any way, but those experiences have helped me try and get in the heads of the women who practiced it, who did like it, who did make it work. They were good friends with their sister wives. Yeah, they were, um, in many cases, they were family. Um, and of course, we see we see stories to the contrary where the women were separated and they didn't live like family. Do you want to tell us sure. maybe some of the worst stories that you read? Um, I didn't read a lot of horrible stories um, because I just studied this one family and and their neighbors. And the stories I saw were generally positive. So, but what, what problems did I see? I saw jealousies often um, in older wives and much younger wives. Um, problems where if the wife wasn't personally involved in selecting the next wife with her husband. I where, can see how that'd be a problem. Yeah, where the husband made the selections himself. A lot of um, jealousies between children. For example, you would have children from the first wife who were the same age, daughters from the first wife, who were the same age as a later, much younger wife, and jealousies between them and the new wife. And jealousies... Uh, between those children not treating the uh, children from a later wife well. 
Now, when, so, when you're saying that, I'm thinking of like the stepmom trope, which has a lot of absolutely. problems. It's, there's sure. a lot of sexism there, but, mm-hmm. um, so it was similar struggles with the daughters. I, I hadn't considered and sons, yeah. the children, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? Right. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, and if you think about it, that's, that's only naturally. So you have a father and each time he takes on a new wife and creates a new family, that's less attention you get from your father. That's less, you know, that your father's attention is divided. Your father's uh, ability to provide is divided. And so, of course, those tensions, those kinds of jealousies would would exist. Now, we know uh, that women were sort of given, I would say, this cultural doctrine to help them deal with their jealousy, right? Like, it was to help them, it, it increased their sacrifice, and the right. harder it was, the more blessings. Sure. Was there anything given to children like that to help them deal with these issues? Same sort of rhetoric, like... You know, that's an interesting question. It's one I've never thought of. Um, but no, I never saw that taught to children. Doesn't mean it didn't exist, but right. I didn't observe it. But definitely, I, I also want to say that it wasn't just a sacrifice for the women to practice polygamy. It was a sacrifice for the men as well. I mean, if... If you look at men who had 25 children, which was not uncommon, and they're providing, can you imagine the responsibility to try and provide for 25 children and multiple wives? And and the, the strain it would be on you as you go from home to home. Those men who practice polygamy well, if you will, who spent individual time, sought to spend individual time with each of those children and each of those families. It was extremely hard on those men as, as well. Not all men lived it that well. Right. But for those who really earnestly tried, it was it was hard. It was hard for everyone all around. Sacrifice yeah, all around. That's something I've tried to highlight on this podcast too, because it's really easy to say, oh, those greedy, lustful men and that's just not what the records are showing us. Of course, there are instances of that, but overall, it just, it was just a hard, I mean, these were hardworking people and they brought that sort of industrious attitude to everything, including their relationships. Yeah. And this is what I observed in the, um, these later relationships, um, polygamous relationships of uh, men and women who honestly were just trying to live what they believed to be God's law and um, God's highest, uh, uh, in order to reach the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, you had to practice polygamy. And they believed this is what they needed to do to obey God. Now, um, is there this sort of like, you know, we living in Utah, we can talk about the culture here and how there's this in-group, out-group. Was there this idea amongst concentrated communities that they were the enlightened ones. They were better. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And they were told. So those who made sacrifices to come to Mexico in order to practice polygamy, we're told when church leaders, visiting authorities would come visit them, they were told they were the cream of the crop. They had the most faith out of all of the membership in the church. Well, in a sense, I mean, it would take a lot of faith to do that. Yeah. They, They did sacrifice the most. I want to go back to one thing and talk about, um, sex. Because, of course, sex was part of, poly- I mean, sex is part of a monogamous marriage. So, of course, it was part of polygamous marriages as well. So, I don't want to say sex had nothing to do with it because it did. But I believe that for most of them, their main motivating factor was not 
the sex, uh, men being able to have more sex partners. The, I believe the primary motivating factor, and this comes out again and again in the sources I saw, was the desire on behalf of both the men and the women to live this higher law of Mormonism. I appreciate you bringing that into this. And something that I've learned through doing this project is just a sort of fluidity of relationships in general in the time period, in frontier life anyway. I mean, people died younger. People would move away. Divorces are not like they are now. I mean, it was fluid. So although, you know, polygamy kind of locked men into having more sexual partners than women, it was not unlikely for women to have multiple partners in their lifetime. They would remarry. And so I'm not trying to say that that equalizes it at all, but it's important to remember, um, again, it's so easy to put our contemporary sort of ideas of relationships onto them. So, But I appreciate you bringing that up because sex is absolutely a part of it, and it's a part that we all get really curious about, but no one really wants to talk about. So let's talk about the exodus because, like I said, a lot of Mormons have to flee during the Mexican Revolution, and we we have heard that it's attributed to Pancho Villa, but we know that he actually befriended and sometimes enlisted some of the colonists, right, to his cause. Um, he never enlisted any of them, oh, okay. but he used their resources. Well, tell us about so. him. I was looking it up, and his. I, I actually wanted to give his real name, because Pancho Villa is not his real name. It's nickname, right? Yeah, that was a later nickname, and uh, I can't remember his actual name. Hold on, I wrote it down just to give credit where credit is. It's in my due. book, but it's I, Jose I'm resting. Dorotio Arango That's Arambula? That sounds right. Okay. So tell us about him. Tell us a little bit about the Mexican Revolution. So we just have a context. Yeah. Well, I should point out that the, the, the Latter-day Saints who fled Mexico during the Mexican Revolution were not we're not being driven out, if you will, because they were Mormons. They're being dri driven out because they were Americans. Yeah, there was like over a hundred, like there was over a million yeah. people that would leave Mexico. They, yeah, that, that many Americans, many um, foreigners, if you will, um, many Caucasians, so Europeans and people from the United States fled Mexico during the Mexican Revolution. So it, it wasn't because of the saints' religion. Which was unique people, for Mormons to not have yeah. to be driven out for religion. They, well, they perceived it as they were being driven because of their religion. You know, they, they were using their collective Mormon memory of, you know, being driven. And, and yeah. so they, they, they invoked tradition. that when they it's talked about tradition. Yeah, they're like, oh, we're being driven again from our homes. But uh, it, it was for very reasons very different from um, uh, Nauvoo or Missouri. So... Um, as I mentioned before, Porfirio Diaz was really a dictator, and he had been in uh, power for a long time. And there was this uprising among um, the Mexican peasants, for lack of a better term. That's what they were called at the time, called themselves, uprising against that. And one of the things they were fighting against was foreign colonization of their country. Um, and they were also striving to overthrow Diaz and put in a more democratic form of government. So you have um, these revolutionaries in one band of which was led by Pancho Villa in uh, northern Mexico that started fighting the central government. And the Mormon colonists were caught right in their wake. They were right in the middle of, of where many of these revolutionary bands were and where they were fighting. So Pancho Villa and his uh, band of army, his army, came into Colonial Dublon with about 10,000 people. 
And so uh, your Lorna would have been just barely. Yeah. Born. So Lorna was uh, six or seven. Six, okay. Yeah. She's just a little girl Old enough at to the time, but remember. she remembered it. She did. And she spoke of this. So they come into this little town of Colonial Dublin and they camp out in, in the town and they, uh, they need food and water <laughs> And resources to carry out their warfare. And the thing that was interesting was, was these, uh, revolutionary soldiers, they came with their families as well. So that's why you have a group of 10,000 coming in, descending on this little town. And, um, the colonists were good to them. They allowed them to, um, camp there in the town. And they, I, I also think they didn't have much of a choice too. If they had <laughs> resisted, they, they would have been wiped out. But they turned over their their crops, and uh, the revolutionaries took their animals to eat, and also took horses for their warfare. So, what is church leadership in Salt Lake doing at this point? They're worried. So, worried about it. So, Salt Lake City is worried about uh, their people in the colonies. And at first, the colonies just think this is just a kind of a passing thing. This is going to go away. They don't realize it's going to become what we call now the Mexican Revolution and last for several years. So they just think, oh, this will pass, this will go away. But finally, in um, 1912, um, one band of revolutionaries demanded that the colonists turn over all of their guns to them. And at this point, they think, ah, this is getting too scary. So they, I'll make a long story short, they leave, they flee, along with thousands of other Americans in Mexico, and they head north across the border into El Paso, where there are refugees for a time. And I have, there were over 2,500 that would flee within the first few years, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And they actually established the first congregation in Texas in, by 1918. Oh, you taught me something there. I didn't know See? that. <laughs> Come on the podcast and you learn something. No, and, and Thanks, yeah, Lindsay. I guess in El Paso, um, first Mormon congregation, and then they actually build a ward house a couple of years later. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so they, they, um, flee to communities up and down the, the, Mexican U.S. border and they flee north of there and many of them stay. So they just like up and leave their homes? Yeah. And yeah, they lost, they lost so much. Mormons are really good at this, you know? (laughs) It's really sad. It's very sad. Um, I I do have that uh, Henry B. Eyring's father was one of the people that fled. He was 11 at the time. Mm -hmm. And as well as George Romney, um, Mitt Romney's father was five. When he fled, when his family fled. And so some of them stay and some of them eventually go back. Will you talk to us? Mm-hmm. Why would they go back? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that was um, the question I had when I studied Lorna's family because they came back. Not only this time, but there are actually two more exoduses. The last one occurring in 1917 and all three times they came back. Really? Yes. So they really saw it as their home? Is that why they would come back? So there's a couple of reasons. One is financial. Bowen wrote, you know, how could we start over? How could we give up everything that we've worked for all these years? You know, our far, our farms, our homes, everything that we've worked for. And I'm not a young man anymore. How could we start over with nothing now in the United States? And again, he's got a lot of children. Um, a lot of wives. It's not really. Well, by then there's just two because two of them have passed away from illnesses. Well, that, that so, brings me another question really quick. If they, when they're fleeing, how are they received in America again as polygamists? The people of El Paso were, uh, well, 
Let's talk about the Americans, then we'll talk about the Mormon counterparts. Okay. So the people of El Paso were very good to these refugees. And again, they weren't just the Mormon American citizens. They were um, all kinds of American citizens who fled north of El Paso. So they put up refugee, the government put up refugee tents for them. The city of El Paso helped to find them housing, helped to um, get food to them and so forth. So they were good to them, but there was also a curiosity about these polygamous families. So people would come and, and here they were in open you know, refugee camps and people would come and kind of gawk at these uh, polygamous refugees. People making their breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just, just kind of checking stuff. out, oh my gosh, look at these polygamous people. What do they look like? You know, kind of like what happened in Texas yeah. several years ago. It's or of, I mean, our I fascination. Kind of it, but we're doing it yeah, on the podcast. Or our so. fascination with this Sister Wives TV show. We'd like to gawk at this very different lifestyle. So anyways, but the U.S. government um, offered... Um, train tickets to people, to the refugees anywhere they'd like to go. So a lot of families went back home to Utah. Because they um, would have had family connections, many of them, right? That's where they came from. Yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but many of them stayed in these little towns along the borders and made new homes there. So you have Binghamton, Arizona, which is now a suburb of Tucson, uh, sprung up when Mormon colonists started that town as an example. So, um, and then what was really interesting, and I think one of the saddest episodes in Mormon history is how these polygamous Mormons who had made, again, such incredible sacrifice to live their religion, live this higher law as they saw it, uh, were perceived by their monogamous Mormon counterparts. Because by now the manifesto would have been out. And oh, yeah, would have for been. a long time. So the manifesto, um, the first manifesto came out in 1890, and this is now in the 1910s. So it's been more than 20 years that um, Mormonism, mainstream Mormonism in the United States has been making this shift towards monogamy. And what happens to them when the... when this manifesto comes out, um, are they still considered Mormons by the by Salt Lake City? Are they considered members of the church? Wait, who, who do you mean? In Mexico, sorry. Oh, oh, absolutely. Oh, so they're absolutely. still considered, they still see themselves as saints. They come to Utah. Oh, yeah. And the rest of the Mormons are like, no thanks. Well, they see, they don't know that these folks have been given instruction or permission or encouragement from Salt Lake City to move to Mexico. Again, because this is... It's been more than 20 years now since yeah. the manifesto to an encouragement to continue to keep the principle alive. So tell us about that encouragement. So, what do we know about that? Oh, just, um, you know, they were told, you know, if you want to practice polygamy, this is, this is, uh, what you can do. And we encourage you to do it to keep the principle alive. And, um, church leaders were saying this to them. Yeah, because we left, know so. a lot of, um, I have some friends that are Centennial Park, and one of their resentments is they want the church to open up their archives, because they're saying, if we open up, if they open up their archives, you will see that, that, you know, uh, John Taylor and other prophets have told us that we are supposed to keep this principle alive. I mean, they really believe that. So, so there is this conflict, and we'll talk about that more when we talk about the manifesto. But so, so they're polygamists, practicing polygamists, they come to Utah, Utah's now had 20 years of distancing itself. The United States, not United just Utah. States. Yeah, yeah. yeah. United States Mormons. And so they, um, they meet their monogamous counterparts, not only in Utah, but 
in some of these border towns, you in know, Arizona. along the border. Uh, yeah, Arizona, Texas, New Mexico. And all of a sudden where they've been told they're the cream of the crop and they believe that about themselves and they've made such incredible sacrifices to live this, they come back and they're, um, Monogamous Mormons are looking at them and they're like, they've done something terribly wrong. And again, the monogamous Mormons are just going off of what they know from the manifesto in 1890. So, but that's a short memory. I mean, they would have had parents or grandparents involved in this, right? Right. But they, but what they've been hearing from the pulpit since 1890 officially is we don't practice polygamy anymore. I see. Officially. Yeah. So, there's this this conflict, and it's very sad because these families from practicing polygamy all of a sudden they're being discriminated against by their own in their own um, congregations. They're pariahs among their own people. So, so they're going to church. Mm-hmm. I mean, and now church in the 1900s looks a little bit different than it does now. But by now, they're established congregations. They're going and they're sitting there with their polygamous families. Right. And they're listening to their bishops condemning polygamy from the pulpit. And they're sitting right there. Polygamous. Wow. Yeah. So it was really sad. And um, a lot of families broke up because they did not want to go back into Mexico and face the the uh, violence of the revolution. So they chose to stay in the United States. And because prosecution was so heavy by then, um, they couldn't live together as polygamous families anymore. And so uh, husbands would often just go with their first wife to whom they were legally married in the United States. And then the other families were left to fend for themselves. That didn't always happen, but it happened often. And in some of the families that I studied and these, uh, these polygamous wives were left to fend for themselves and raise their children on their own. Would they have somewhere no else. contact with their husband? Uh, very little wow. contact. But again, I don't want to say that was the case with all right. of them, but just with some of them that I studied. So to your question of um, why um, Lorna's family kept coming back into Mexico, as I mentioned, one was for financial reasons. They couldn't f- afford to start over. They didn't want to start over. And secondly, they felt very strongly that they wanted to stay together as a family unit. They did not want to break up the family. I can and just so they imagine. Were, yeah. So I, I admire their tenacity in wanting to be willing to face continued violence of the revolution, continued loss. The revolution wiped them out uh, in so many ways, but were willing to keep going back so that their family could continue to live together as a family. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's something that I've just learned today, which is go, going to give me something to really think about of living in this sort of, I mean, this is really kind of the Mormon story of finding peace for a moment and then asking to give it all up again, you know? And, and I, I don't know that we really have a modern example. Um, I felt that way a little bit, you know, with the ordained women thing, like walking past the temple and realizing like, I'll never be able to go in there again. And I felt sort of that loss of leaving my temple and, and having to start over. But I don't, I don't know that modern saints really, modern American saints have had to experience a loss like that, a loss of family, a loss of your home, and then just have to redo it over and over. And I think, I think that that's something that we, um, we get tired of the hearing these pioneer hero, heroic stories over and over and over again, but it really shaped us as a people. I mean, that idea of sacrifice for your beliefs to the extent that your family could be persecuted by your own people. I'm broken up. That's really powerful to me. So I appreciate you sharing that. Do you want to talk 
any more about the revolution or the exodus. I, I have in my notes just a fun little fact. Cleon Skousen, the anti-communist writer, uh, he would go back to the colony of Juarez and re try to recolonize it after the Mexican Revolution. So do you, do we have any other like little tidbits of information that you think are relevant to the discussion? Well, I think I should point out that the um, while the Mexican Revolution did end some of these smaller communities led to their ultimate demise. Um, the larger ones, particularly Colonial Juarez and Colonial Dublon, continued on, and um, people like Laura's family came back and, and lived out their lives there. And those two colonies, if you will, they're not called, I don't know, they're, they've really been absorbed by the larger Mexican communities that have now, you know, grown around them. But those, those communities continued, and, and there are people who live in the colonies or who live in Colonial Juarez and Dublon today who descend from those early colonizers. So now, they did didn't polygamy stop? Yes, eventually. Well <laughs> yes and no. I mean Just like now. <laughs> you know, we have a persistence of polygamy. But yes, there was um what was uh colloquially called the second manifesto that came out in um nineteen oh four in which Joseph F. Smith said, Okay, we're going to stop practicing polygamy, even in Mexico and Canada now. It was the result of the Reed-Smoot trials that were going on. Congress discovered that polygamy had continued. Even um, by some of the prophets. Or yes, uh -huh, after the 1890 Manifesto, particularly in Mexico. And so there was greater scrutiny in Mexico now where there hadn't been before. So uh, Joseph F. Smith in 1904 said, okay, no more polygamy, no more new marriages polygamous marriages even in Mexico and Canada. So the um, those who were faithful to the more mainstream church did live that and they did not uh, marry polygamously anymore, but they did continue to live with their polygamous families that were formed before And so would they be raising their kids saying, okay, this is not for you now? Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Basically, you know, so our church leaders now have said no more. I wonder and what so, that would have been like as a parent too, to sort of abandon or erase, I don't know if erase is the right word, your own lifestyle. I mean, it's, I, I'm thinking of raising my children to live differently than I, than I do. That would be really hard, I think. Yeah. Interesting. It would be yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because a lot of these kids from the colonies, they were smart kids and then were a stake academy. The private school that the colonists formed for these children was excellent. It was an excellent school. And so these kids were well-educated and most of them uh, would go to Brigham Young University, where they continued to um, become well-educated and go on to graduate degrees and so forth. The Some Irings, would even <laughs> run for president. Yeah, the Romneys. I mean, you, the, these were really high-caliber people who came out of the colonies. Lorna went on to get her master's degree in the 1930s in at Columbia University. I mean, these were smart, well-educated people. So... Um, Anyways, I think they just adjusted what, what I saw, the families I study. They just adjusted and said, okay, this is what the prophet says now. We follow what the prophet says now. But there was an interesting conversation that Lorna's father had with her when she, before she went away to BYU. And he said, always be proud of your heritage. You know, he says, you don't need to advertise that you come from a polygamous family. But if it comes up, be proud of who you are. Be proud of your heritage and know that we have been following the prophets of the church and know that we have been living our religion and be proud of that. Never be ashamed of that. 
Oh, I like that. I I can't wait for um your book to come out. And when it does, can we talk about Lorna? Because I absolutely I really like her as a backdrop for you know this transition between old Mormonism and sort of new Mormonism, which is I mean that's reductive, but I think that that would be a good template. So um when is that going to be out? Do you have a? I um it's in the hands of the family, and it's up to them when they I I wrote the book for the family. So it's finished. Oh, it's been finished for a while. Oh, good. So um, good. Well, when it's out soon. and it's and it's published, I would love to have you come back and to come back and talk about Mount, Mountain Meadows. We've talked about that quite a bit, but I would love to hear your perspective on it. It's just been such a delight to have you come on. Thank you so so much. Thank you, Lindsay. I've enjoyed it. Can people contact you if they have any questions, or is there anything you want to promote, like the MHA or anything? Oh. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm on the board of the Mormon History Association, um, the membership chair, and so I'm always out there stumping for more members. Um, we hold an annual meeting every year, and next year it's going to be in Provo. And uh, anyone is invited to join the MHA and to attend this conference. I just started going casually years ago, and then it got me hooked on history. Um, I guarantee you, if you come, you'll enjoy it and love it. Lindsay, I hope you'll be there. Yeah, I want to be there. And we should host a FMH polygamy podcast lunch or something. We should all get together and have, Absolutely. I would love to go with the listeners. It would be a lot of fun. Absolutely. Um, our president this year is of course, Pulitzer Prize winning MacArthur genius, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. So she will be our keynote speaker and, um, she's going, she's, we're working hard to make sure it's a wonderful conference. And so mormonhistoryassociation.org, go to it and please join, join with us. Okay. Well, thanks so much uh, for coming on. And everyone, thank you for listening to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Podcast.